This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the Math Education Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and my guest today is Indigo Esmond, who's an associate professor in the Department of Curriculum Teaching and Learning at the University of Toronto. Thanks, Indigo, for being my first international guest. <laughs> Thanks, Sam. <laughs> We're going to be talking about Indigo's article with Jennifer Langer Osuna um, called Power in Numbers, Student Participation in Mathematical Discussions in Heterogeneous Spaces, appearing currently in the Journal for Research in Mathematics Education, the, the Equity Special Issue. But before we get to that article, I want to ask Indigo about her graduate school experience. Uh, I went to Berkeley for my master's and PhD in education, um, the graduate school of education there. My advisor was Jeffrey Sachs, um, and Jenny actually was also a grad student at Berkeley. Um, I graduated in 2006, she graduated in 2009, and we started on this article uh, the summer right after I graduated, actually, 2006. We both had really similar research interests in issues of equity and identity in math classrooms, and my, my research is focused mainly in secondary classrooms, and Jenny sort of middle school and currently, I believe, elementary mathematics and issues of equity. Okay. And so uh, for your dissertation, how did you start off that research endeavor? Um, the long <laughs> the long version <laughs> uh, I won't give you right now, but uh, I was interested in issues of equity in secondary math, and I knew a teacher who worked in a, at a local high school who was very passionate and also a very talented teacher uh, with respect to issues of equity. And so we agreed uh, that I could do some research in her classroom. Originally it was going to be about um, so studying social justice issues in mm -hmm. math classrooms, but once the data uh, were all in, it was actually much more interesting to look at the dynamics of group work in those classrooms. And so that's what I ended up doing. Okay. Um, and that'll come to play in the article that we're going to be discussing. Um, but you've been doing a lot of work, um, you know, since 2006 in the area of power dynamics in mathematics classrooms. And I was wondering where that sort of motivation for you came from. Does it come from a background before grad school, or does it come from some personal experiences? Uh, well, when I came to grad school, I had actually been, um, I have a master's in math, and when it came time to decide what to do after that, um, I felt like I was living two lives. I was doing, um, you know, the math, the, the graduate work in mathematics, and then I was also engaged in a lot of activism. Um, I was living in Montreal at the time. Um, there's a lot of, like, anti-globalization activism going on. Um, this is, like, late 90s. And I just felt like it was too hard to be devoting so much energy into these two very different areas. Hmm. And so when I came to education, it was because I wanted to sort of bring those things together. I had this expertise in mathematics and a knowledge about uh, in, in that area. And I wanted to sort of do some activist work around making schools more equitable places that work better for more students. Um, but I have to say, I didn't know too much. Like, I don't have a background in education prior to grad school. So as I took courses, um, then that conviction grew that um, the work that I needed to do was around equity 
and how schools could contribute to, to greater equality in society rather than, unfortunately, reproducing inequality. Hmm. And so part of that work that you've then undertaken um, is to, to bring a theoretical framework or to theorize in certain ways so that you can really tackle these issues in education research. And uh, one of the big th- pieces of theoretical machinery that you bring to the current article in JRME is the idea of figured worlds. And so I was wondering if you could describe that idea to us. Yeah, so um, I really like figured worlds as a framework to help us understand what's happening in classrooms. Um, It comes from some work in anthropology. Dorothy Holland and her colleagues uh, have a book called Identity, Identity and Agency in Cultural Worlds. And so the definition, I'll just read it to you, but then I will explain. So figured worlds are socially and culturally constructed realms of interpretation in which particular characters and actors are recognized, significance is assigned to certain acts, and particular outcomes are valued over others. So it's similar to the concept from psychology of schemas or scripts. Um, So maybe some folks are more familiar with kind of a psychology background. So schemas and scripts, the, the idea is that before we enter into many social situations, like going into a restaurant, Um, or going into a classroom, we already have an idea usually of what might happen, who are the people that are going to be there, what might they do, what order might that take place. So figured worlds is is a similar concept, but with, I think, more of a narrative flavor. So thinking about the stories that we tell, the stories that we construct as we interact with people in different spaces. So we always act as if something is significant. So when a student hands in a paper, we act as if that gives us some sense of their mathematical understanding. And so we act as if often enough to sort of give it a social reality, but the idea is that that's always constructed. Hmm. And so you think about, when you're thinking about figured worlds, so who are the characters and what are the stories that we expect to take place in a classroom, for example? So there are going to be teachers and students, but usually there's, you know, the kind teacher and the strict teacher, and there's um, maybe the beginning teacher versus the older teacher, and students have different expectations of what they're going to get from those different kinds of teachers. There are different kinds of students, um, the class clown or... Um, the teacher's pet, um, the, the you know high achiever, the athlete, and so they take on a different flavor. You expect different things from these different characters. Mm-hmm. So I've sort of been emphasizing what we already know before we go into the classroom. So Figured World sort of helps you to think about, it's almost like this background information that everyone's operating in. At the same time as we really emphasize that figured worlds are constantly being reconstructed and renegotiated, there's a lot of wiggle room in there. Hmm. In any given classroom, things might not play out exactly as you expect, and the student might find a way to be both the class clown and the really high achiever. Hmm. Um, And so there's both um, the sort of predetermined, but then always in flux nature of figured worlds. Okay, so if I'm if I'm trying to wrap my head around this, so uh, the figure worlds to me, I'm kind of thinking of it as uh, what movie I'm in, and I'm just going to kind of use this as an analogy. Mm-hmm. But if I know I'm in a kind of romantic comedy, then I have certain expectations about what's going to happen and how people are going to behave and what kind of jokes to expect and what kind of actions to expect. Versus if I'm in a horror movie or if I'm in some other, you know, a, a drama, serious drama, 
Uh-huh. Um, so the figured world is kind of that, you know, what genre am I in? So what what can I expect? And, and again, I'm, I'm just using a metaphor. Um, yeah, that's a great analogy. And then the students take on different roles. So that's kind of, you know, taking on a role or one of the characters in this kind of movie or this, uh, you know, genre that I'm operating in. But it's not determined or it's not fixed, right? Somebody can go against type or somebody can act differently than the character is expected to act. Um, so it's not deterministic. It's just sort of this set of expectations. Yeah, and so I think that's a great analogy. And the expectations are really powerful. So most often real life doesn't play out the way we expect it to at the same time as we still have to deal with those expectations if we're trying to breach them. So I, I think of an example. This is um, from Penelope Eckert's um, book, Jocks and Burnouts. And so the idea is that in a school, um, there were sort of two kinds of students, the jocks and the burnouts. And most students actually didn't identify themselves within either of those categories, mm-hmm. but they were always sort of identified by others that way. And they had to sort of push back against those categories in some way. So even if they didn't fall into them, like it wasn't predetermined, like you were saying, still that expectation was there and you had to kind of deal with it. Mm-hmm. So Figured Worlds um, has that flavor as well. There's a um, an earlier book by Dorothy Holland, um, Holland and Eisenhart, um, Educated in Romance, and they talk about how... Um, the expectations of romance within a university setting, primarily for young women. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even if you weren't going to follow the expectation of going out on a lot of dates and so on, you had to deal with people's expectation of what kind of person you were if you did or didn't do that. Right. And uh, the idea of positioning really ties together nicely with figured worlds because positioning is kind of what position or what uh, what character in this movie or what character in this figured role are you being situated as? Yeah, and that's so, also always in flux, right? You're not like once you're once you're pigeonholed as something, you don't necessarily stay there. It's always a dynamic. Thing. Yeah. So um, one of the powerful aspects of the framework is that power is really built into the concept of figured worlds, and so there's sort of a narrative aspect of you know which character you are, and then there's like a power positioning hierarchical aspect of uh, which of these characters are more valued than others. Mm. In the in the article in Jeremy that's appearing currently in the Equity Special Issue, um, you really bring the figured world framework and ideas of positioning to try to interrogate and investigate those issues of power. Um, so can you say a little bit about what you were really trying to achieve with this article? Yeah, so for Jenny and I, when we started... Um, This is actually some dissertation data of mine um, that hadn't been analyzed within my dissertation, but it was a particular group of students that seemed very contentious. There was a lot of conflict within this group. And we were both really interested to understand more about that conflict, what we saw as like power struggles Hmm. within that figured world. Um, And we really wanted to understand sort of why the conflict and how did that conflict play out. And what we originally saw in a really bare-bones description of it were two popular girls who weren't achieving very well and an unpopular boy who was a high achiever in the class and this conflict between them that was mathematical as well as 
related to friendship and, you know, what kind of relationship was this group going to have with one another. And so we wanted to understand the conflict and we wanted to understand how that affected the group work that took place. Okay. So it was really, this article really came about from a quest to understand the power dynamics and the types of interactions that were happening in this group. Exactly, yeah. Okay. Um, and so you said this came from your dissertation. Can you give us just a little bit more background um, about the data that you collected for your dissertation and the context that this article is situated in? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, I spent a year in three different classrooms in a high school in California uh, collecting mainly video. I, I did some interviews with uh, students kind of beginning, middle, and end of the year, and I did um, interviews with the teacher. The interviews with the teacher were primarily um, to maintain open lines of communication between the two of us. Um, they didn't end up as data, really, but um, building that relationship was really important to the work that I was able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, for the dissertation, I chose two different kinds of activities, a group quiz and preparing for a presentation, and I looked at several instances across the year to understand how those tax- tasks were different. So, in viewing all of that data, I came across this group of Riley, Dawn, and Cheyenne, and I'll tell you a little bit more about the, about those three students. Okay. Um, and saw this conflict. I was really interested in it, but it couldn't take. Uh, it, I couldn't include it in the dissertation, and so I brought it to Jenny and suggested uh, that she might be able to help me understand it. Right. Um, and yeah, since those those three students play such a large role in the study, that'd be great if you could say a little bit more about them. Yeah, so uh, there were these three students. Uh, students in this classroom worked together in groups for about four weeks at a time. And this group, there was a core of Dawn, who was an African-American girl in the 10th grade. Uh, her really good friend Cheyenne, another African-American girl in the 10th grade. And Riley, who was a white boy in the ninth grade, um, and Riley was pretty widely considered to be the smartest kid in the class. I did like some social network questionnaire to the students, asking mm-hmm. them to name three students that they thought were smart in math, mm-hmm. and almost everyone in the class named him. Um, okay. And Don and Cheyenne were struggling a little bit more. They, they were probably, in terms of achievement, in about the middle of the class. I'm more interested in how they were perceived, and I never really got the sense that they were perceived as, um, you know, someone who you would turn to for help in class, for example. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, there were other students in their group. Um, there was one student that was there for a couple of weeks and then got shifted out because of a different kind of conflict, and another student that got shifted in. But our analysis really focuses primarily on Don, Cheyenne, and Riley. Okay. And the teacher was using IMP, uh, right, as the curriculum material? Yeah, the teacher was using IMP2, which is a reform-oriented math textbook that with a lot of reading and writing and problem-solving. Okay. I'm speaking with Indigo Esmond about her article with uh, Jennifer Langer-Alsuna, Power in Numbers, Student Participation in Mathematical Discussions in Heterogeneous Spaces. Um, So you're taking a closer look at this group of three students uh, and trying to understand the power dynamics and the way that the the power played out through figured worlds and how that relates to their mathematical activities. So I was wondering if if you could take us through some of the things that you found when you looked at that group. Sure, yeah. Um, 
Every time you mention the title, I remember that I haven't spoken yet about the concept of heterogeneous spaces. Okay. And I think that sort of informs the findings. Sure. Um, we really conceptualized the classroom as heterogeneous in a couple of different ways. One, it was very diverse in terms of race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, gender, um, and in, in ways that were linked to hierarchies in the classroom. Um, which I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about later. Mm -hmm. um, and then also had our genius in terms of the figured worlds that were being constructed there. So we think it's important to remember that not everything that happens in a math classroom is mathematical in nature, that there's a lot going on between students as well as between students and teachers that um, often gets ignored in in most studies of mathematical interaction or learning interactions in school. Mm -hmm. And especially with this group because of the power struggles that were taking place, we saw this group shift a lot between what we saw as different figured worlds. And primarily we, we talk about two figured worlds. One is sort of a mathematical classroom interaction and one the figured world of friendship and romance. Okay. And then within the mathematics classroom figured world, we also felt that that was heterogeneous, that there was a real conflict in the group about what mathematical interactions between peers should look like. Okay. So first I'll talk about the, the mathematics classroom figured world. Um, as I mentioned, uh, the teacher was using a reform curriculum, so there was a lot of reading and writing, um, deep problems that were challenging for the students, and there was a lot of group work. Okay. Mm -hmm. Within this class, there was conflict almost every time they talked about anything. <laughs> um, but in the mathematical interactions, it was really clear that the kind of interaction that Riley was pushing for was quite different from the kind of interaction that Dawn was pushing for. And Cheyenne was sort of a buffer between the two and sometimes sort of sided with one and sometimes the other. So we talked mainly about um, Dawn and Riley as kind of Polarized, the polarizing to people within the group. Mm -hmm. So we give um, an example in, in the paper of an interaction that highlights this conflict within the mathematical figured world. Um, so Riley was trying to help his group work on the task. And so he asked a question, uh, basically like a factual question about a piece of information they needed. How much money was needed for such and such? Um, in a problem that they were doing about, you know, kind of budgeting for different amounts. And Dom basically said, you know, I don't know, and you should find it because I don't know where it is. And then sort of accused Riley of treating them as if they were stupid. And at the very least, as if they were students. And you talk about in the article how Riley's kind of positioning himself not as a student, you know, because a student wouldn't normally give directions or ask that kind of question of another student, right? Well, that's interesting because I think in reform classrooms, a lot of teachers would want their students to ask questions instead of what's seen as giving away the answer. Right. And so Riley, we believe, I agree with you, that he was asking a very teacher-like question. Whether that's sort of valued in all classrooms, I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, Riley, to Riley, I, you know... We purposely weren't trying to say what we thought people were thinking, but I don't think that Riley had bad intentions here. I don't think he wanted them to think that they were stupid. I think he was sincerely trying to help them, guide them through the problem. Mm -hmm. But to Don, as you pointed out, 
her strong reaction against this was that's an inappropriate way to speak to a peer. Mm. That you shouldn't speak to us like that. You're treating us like we're stupid. Mm. And so later um, we go into a lot more detail about the evidence that we have for what we call a more didactic style of interaction that seemed preferred by Don versus the kind of guiding style of interaction that Riley seemed to prefer, especially at the beginning of this group's work together. Okay, so I, and I think I have a sense of what you mean by the guiding interactions. I mean, that's where Riley is kind of trying to serve as the guide in a guiding interaction. Yeah, he's kind of guiding them by asking these questions, helping them to find the information, but not telling them what to do. Okay. And then the didactic, can you say a little bit more about uh, the didactic type interaction? Yeah, didactic interaction more like instead of asking how much money have they set aside, um, to say, okay, and they've set aside such and such for shipping, and so now you need to write down this equation. Okay. So, so this was the mathematical figured world, and again, heterogeneity within that about how students felt how they were trying to shape that mathematical figured world in different ways. So that was one place where we saw a power struggle. Mm -hmm. Then we also saw a power struggle within the figured world of friendship and romance, and also the way that they flipped back and forth between those figured worlds. So it's hard to make a quantitative analysis here, but it seemed that often when Riley sort of had the upper hand in the mathematical figured world, which was often because he was seen as you know the smartest kid in the class, Okay. then Don and Cheyenne would flip to interactions where they were joking around together or listening to music or talking about dating or, um, you know, their hair um, and things like that. Um, and so we felt that they were sort of flipping to this space of friendship and popularity where they had more power than Riley did. And in some ways in those interactions, it was really clear that Riley had less power. So one, he would try to join them now and then, and they would often just kind of laugh and tease and make fun of him. They also had really explicit discussions about dating, where they talked about um, a friend of theirs who was a multiracial, but mainly identified as African-American boy, who was dating a Latina girl, uh, but with, who had very light skin, and so sometimes could pass for white. Mm -hmm. And so they implied that it was wrong for this person of color to be dating a white person. And so really setting up a barrier between themselves as African-American students and Riley as a white student, mm -hmm. as not friends, um, no possibility of another kind of relationship, and where they clearly had you know more power than he did. Mm -hmm. I remember that interaction in the article, and at one point, Riley kind of tries to chime in and make a comment, and they, they pretty much just continue talking about what they were talking about. Yeah. And they don't really take up a conversation with him at all. Yeah, yeah. So there's a moment when they're, you know, chatting, and Riley asks Cheyenne, so did you know that your tongue is bright red? And she's like, I know my whole mouth is red, and just goes back to her conversation, and her, her tone changes mm -hmm. from sort of light and laughing and funny to, like, very stern. And then back to laughing with her friend. Right, so the pow the difference in power within that figured world seems pretty clear in that interaction. Yeah, he can't even enter into those conversations. Right. Hmm. And now, uh, when we set up this study and when you were talking about your motivation for doing the study, you talked about how you were really interested in how all of this related to mathematical activities and the kinds of mathematical practices that students engage in. So what did you see in the article with respect to these figured worlds and how those related to 
what actually happened mathematically in the small group? Yeah, so once we had kind of laid the foundation of um, what these different figured worlds were and the different conflicts that we saw, we went deeper into understanding especially Dawn's engagement in mathematical practices to understand, you know, how she participated in, in, in mathematics learning. Um, we're using, like, sociocultural frameworks to think of participation as learning, and so participating in different mathematics discourse practices was sort of our lens on what she was learning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as I kind of hinted that there's more to these didactic interactions than meets the eye. Um, I think, as I mentioned, I think a lot of teachers really want students to be more of the guide as opposed to a teacher who tells, well, teachers don't tend to do this anyway, (laughs) uh, but they don't want kids to just tell each other what to do. But in our analysis, going a little bit deeper into what we call those didactic interactions, we actually saw a lot more mathematical value in them than we had expected. So when Riley asks Dawn to make conjectures or, you know, to offer an an idea or to justify her thinking Mm -hmm. in a kind of a guiding way, she just refuses point blank. Mm -hmm. But when Riley tells her what to do next, she actually engages in many of those behaviors. And we were led to, I was doing a lot of reading and conversation analysis at the time, and I came across this article about radio talk show hosts. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was about sort of the power of that, of being second in a conversation. So a radio talk show host, someone will call in, and the radio, and they get the first chance to speak about whatever their opinion is. Well, the talk show host then has the power to just completely uh, critique and sort of shut down their argument, rather than having to put forward an argument of their own. Mm-hmm. And so we saw this happening in the classroom. If you asked Dawn a question, she wasn't necessarily going to answer it. But when Riley gave his opinion about, you know, what they should do next, then she could critique him. And he, you know, made mistakes like anyone else does. And that sort of put her back into that position of power, which was sort of unexpected to us because we tend to see the person explaining as the one with more power. Mm -hmm. But we were seeing how Dawn was using those interactions in a way to kind of take back some mathematical power. And then that allowed her to like I said, to make conjectures, to offer her opinions, to critique his ideas, to ask for more clarity, to require, you know, solid definitions and solid arguments. Um, and so we found that some of these didactic conversations were actually very mathematically fruitful for her. Mm-hmm. And again, I just, you know, we felt that those didactic interactions get sort of short shrift from us as researchers often and from teachers sometimes, um, that we want you know, someone like Dawn to be able to figure it out on her own without recognizing the ways that those power dynamics in the classroom might actually make that even more difficult for her to put herself into that vulnerable position when she already has sort of less power in the classroom hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that, um, those benefits that you saw coming out of the didactic interactions depend on what Dawn did with them or how she positioned herself in those interactions because if she took up that position as critic and was willing to point out either things that weren't clear or things that were mistakes, that's different than if she had taken the position of just passive listener and I'm just going to receive or copy what Riley is saying. 
So the fact that, I mean, it seems like a, a hinge to all of this that, that you're talking about was that the way that Dawn actually did position herself within those didactic interactions. Yeah, I, I completely agree, and I think it's also really highlighting um, students' agency so that, you know, we can't predict how they're going to take up a particular discourse practice or how they're going to respond to a certain kind of question um, or a certain group dynamic and that um, people are actually quite creative in setting up interactions that work for them in some way mm -hmm. and wh what I think we need to do is understand how is that working for that student right how did it work for Dawn to take up that position of critic if she had uh, taken the more passive role, she would also be exercising agency. That would be working for her in some way. Mm -hmm. So how would that work for her? You know, what is she getting out of taking on that more passive role if that's what she were doing? Yeah, and so just really recognizing uh, these are individuals. Each group might be different. Each student might be different. And how are they? What? How are they positioning themselves? How are they being positioned within the different interactions? I mean, it's. A very complex question because it's really going to be different and unique at every group you look at, every student you, you look at. It is. That, so there's that level of individuality and, and independence and then something that we couldn't get too deeply into into this paper, um, especially in our analysis of the mathematical interactions, but that we also really believe it's significant that this was two girls and a boy, two African-American girls, and a white boy, and that some of the conflict around interactional style was probably related to those different uh, social identities that they embodied, um, which really came out in the friendship uh, and romance conversations. Mm -hmm. It came out less so in the mathematical interactions, but we sort of, we used the fact that they were flipping back and forth between the friendship conversations and the mathematical ones to show, you know, this mathematical space was racialized and gendered as well. So part of the complexity of trying to do this analysis is maintaining one eye on students' agency and individuality and independence and another on the ways that these social categories are playing out in the interaction as well. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, too, if you have... Uh kind of going along these same lines, if you have a, another key takeaway um, or takeaways that you want to leave with the listeners when they're thinking about this article. Yeah, well, there's a few. So one um, is understanding that interactions between peers in a math classroom can be significantly different to math, uh, sorry, interactions with the teacher. Mm-hmm. Another is not to assume that reform-like interactions are sort of preferable to others, like the more didactic interactions. And then more of a question to keep in mind than sort of a takeaway is trying to understand the relationship between the kinds of conflicts that seem mathematical in nature to other kinds of conflicts that might be going on, such as those related to students' identities, racialized and gendered identities, and class identities. Hmm. Yeah, this article really raises some interesting things, and I know for my own work, I've, I've been looking at students' participation in mathematical practices, and I've really started by looking at whole class interactions that are teacher-led, and this article is really um, kind of inspiring me to, as soon as I can, collect some good data you know, at the student level from student-led interactions, um, small groups, and, and really getting there, because this, 
this article is really opening my eyes to some of the things that can be going on and the way that all of these different issues and power dynamics and figured worlds, you know, the figured worlds are not just interesting in their own for their own sake. They really do seem to relate to the kinds of mathematical activities that are taking place. So thank you so much to you and Jenny uh, for writing the article. Thanks. Um, we're, so we're discussing the article Power in Numbers, Student Participation in Mathematical Discussions in Heterogeneous Spaces. Um, before I let Indigo go, though, I do want to ask one question. It's a question that I ask all my guests. Um, and it w it's just, if you were not in the field of math education, if you were doing something else with your life, um, what would you see that being? Okay, well, in my dream life, <laughs> then I would be some kind of rock star. Oh. Because my hobbies are mainly involve wearing sequins and singing karaoke. Okay. Now, we've um, had somebody before, I think it might have been Mandy Jansen, who talked about being a pop star, but you said specifically rock star. Yeah, I like to, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, that's, yeah, Mandy's a, Mandy's a good friend of mine, so I'm, I'm, I think we would be friends as rock stars, <laughs> In the real world, probably uh, community organizing or some other, like, kind of political work, anti-oppression training and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who does karaoke on the side? <laughs> that can be a way that you can organize the community. You can, you can come <laughs> together around music. Exactly. Um, Indigo Esmond, uh, thank you so much for talking with us about your article. Thanks, Sam. Thank you for listening to this episode of the MathEd Podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, please use the PayPal donation button at mathedpodcast.com.